For me, I think a voice and a song in particular carries with it a human experience at its simplest and often its rawest. Music has always been a vehicle for the spirit of people, the spirit of the times and the stories of people. And where we believe those stories, that's empathy in action. And that's where action can begin. And this is Cry Power, my podcast about people who are using what's available to them to change the world. Presented with our friends at Global Citizen, on each episode I'll be sitting down with people who are putting themselves out there to support a cause that's dear to them. I'll be talking to people whose work is making a real difference, musicians, artists, or just some of my heroes. Hello, and welcome to the Cry Power podcast. I want to thank everyone for listening over the past year or so we are coming close to the end of this season and i've just two conversations left for you if i could i'd like to take a moment to introduce my guest for this episode an irish human rights activist and published author colm o'gorman is the founder and former director of one in four which is an irish and uk-based organization that provides support for people who have experienced sexual violence He has campaigned on the grassroots, national and global level for accountability and justice for those who have experienced sexual violence. Colm has spoken bravely in public in the past of his experience with this issue and how it turned his life inside out at a young age. In 1995, Colm reported to police of the abuse he suffered at the hands of a Roman Catholic priest when he was just 14 years old. And in 1998, He sued the Pope in an effort to make the church accountable for its central role in directing the global cover-up of the rape and abuse of children and vulnerable adults by members of the clergy. I could describe Colm as a David-like figure staring down Goliath, but on the social landscape of Ireland, Colm O'Gorman is a giant. Colm has served as a senator in the upper house of the Irish Parliament, lead campaigner in Ireland's referendum for marriage equality for same-sex couples, which was a success, and a lead campaigner in the more recent referendum to remove the constitutional ban on abortion in Ireland, which was a success. He organised the Stand for Truth rally, a public gathering centred on solidarity and empathy towards those who had suffered at the hands of the institutionalised Roman Catholic Church, which took place during the Pope's recent visit to Ireland. And on top of all of this, he is currently the executive director of Amnesty International Ireland. And we talk about uh, resilience quite a bit in this this episode, the resilience of people and indeed the resilience of of love and hope. And you'll hear a column say during this episode that, you know, life itself, life itself is incredibly resilient. And to quote him, life always seeks to manifest itself in a healthy, powerful, affirming way. And in many ways, Colm and his great work embodies the spirit of those words. He's not only one of the most resilient people I know, but someone who is remarkable in the way they approach the world with such sheer empathy and hopefulness, consistently speaking to and looking for uh, the better nature of, of people, despite all he's experienced. And to me, Colm's outlook embodies much of what this podcast is about and, and why these conversations are interesting and and important to me. You know, and, and personally, I've taken so much from, from taking part in marches and rallies, uh, many of which that he's uh, been part of organising, 
that present their intention and present their values in a way that is just as he describes. Colm O'Gorman was kind enough to sit down with me in London recently and share with us his story and his journey. I would say there are elements of this discussion that some listeners may be particularly sensitive to. The first time we met, I believe, was the Safe Ireland Summit a few years ago. The Safe Ireland Summit is a summit that takes place that, that I suppose, that, that connects a huge amount of, of uh, people around the world, I suppose, are, we're, we're speaking there about, about um, policies and, and responses towards domestic abuse. We, you, were, you were speaking at that. That was the first time we met. Mm. And then subsequent marches, etc., for, for different for different causes. There is, there's few people uh, I can think of, few people... Certainly, in fact, there's nobody that I know personally. So I'm very glad to know you personally. I'm very, very honoured to know you personally. Very honoured to have you on the podcast. Thrilled that you've you've joined us and, and um, you're willing to talk to us and give us your time. So thank you so so much. If you've, and there's no one I know that is a better example of of what one person's life can change. And when one when one person decides to to um, work towards something, dedicate themselves towards something. You, you've had an, a, an incredible life, but your, your, the actions that you've taken, the decisions that you've taken, have, have made made quite quite remarkable waves. You know, and like, so I'd love to contextualise you. You're now the, you know, the CEO of Amnesty Ireland of of Ireland's uh, Amnesty International office. But you have a remarkable story. At one point, you 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 said you were you experienced street homelessness at, at one point in in, in your life. Would you mind just speaking to us about, you know, contextualising, you know, your journey? How have you, you gotten to that point? God, why don't you start with that? First of all, thanks. It's nice <laughs> to see you. <laughs> it's good to see you. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's always interesting when somebody reflects back, maybe something around impact, because, you know, when, for, for me anyway, when I come at a piece of work, I, I very often am motivated in quite a responsive, or, or I have been motivated in quite a responsive or reactive way, right? I, I Something presents itself and it's like, well, that demands an action. What action does that demand? And then that's what you do. Um, as opposed to, I don't know, some, you know, long-term strategic view of the impact that one will have on the world or anything else like that, right? So, um, well, as to, to explain background a little bit, um, I'm actually not sure where to start with yeah, that. Yeah, we start, of course, yeah. yeah. So I would... Um you founded in 1999. Mm. You founded one in four. Yeah, here in London initially. In London, yeah, first. and it's it's still here in south southeast London. Now has offices in both south and north uh, of London. Okay, and uh, I I didn't I didn't realize that the mm. London office was the first, mm. and that provides support. It provides uh, support for for therapy and and. I believe also access to 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 legal advice for people who have, have suffered. Uh, yeah, the whole idea when when I established the organisation was I was working as a therapist in private practice, and the majority of people I was working with had were coming with issues around um, experiences of sexual violence, and I was working on a one to one basis with them. Delighted with that work, and it was going very well. But very often, when you reengage with trauma, as I know from my own life and my own process of doing that, um. <sighs> When trauma has been long suppressed and you 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 reaccess it, a collapse happens. Life starts to fall apart in some ways, and lots of things present. So, you know, um, lots of issues come up beyond the the therapeutic things like access to justice issues. If somebody needs to 
report uh, um, their own experiences of rape or abuse to the police. There might be child protection concerns. Mm-hmm. There might be uh, um, legal recourse that they need to take if an institution was involved. Education, access to medical services. I mean, working with 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 women who'd experienced sexual violence as children and in the course of their therapy, they disclosed that they've never, ever had a smear test, for instance, and they're terrified of any kind of smear or gynecological intervention. Well, as a therapist, my role was to work with them in that setting and I couldn't really step beyond at that point the boundary of that role to provide access to those kinds of services. And I remember thinking, there has to be somewhere that does that. Um, and I wanted my own practice held and challenged and peer-reviewed as well. So I thought maybe I can find an organisation that provides both therapeutic and practical support to women and men who had experienced sexual violence. And I could bring this work there. And I looked around and at that point, there wasn't one. Nobody here in London anyway was, was doing that at that time. Um, so as you do when you're seized by an idea that seems right, I just woke up one morning and I thought, OK, well, we, we'll start one then. So I founded One in Four with that vision in mind, that it was, first of all, a space that would speak from the experience of sexual violence because we wanted to really start to challenge notions of stigma mm-hmm. and the idea that somehow that the trauma of sexual violence was life-defining, that one would never fully recover from that experience or be powerful or free of it. Mm-hmm. So we wanted it to be a space that that spoke from and acted from that. So uh, it would be run for and by people who'd had an experience of sexual violence, but offer therapeutic and practical support. So counselling, psychotherapy, group therapy, and then advocacy. Essentially, we wanted to open the door and say, if you need support, come, and we'll try and respond to your needs. And, and that's what we did initially in London in, in 1999. Mm-hmm. You mentioned there that this uh, the need for these things was something that you understood from your own experience. And the organisation is one that was founded by and ran by people who live through uh, sexual violence. You've spoken bravely about this in public uh, before and you've shared your story. Um, you experienced sexual violence as a boy in Ireland. Yeah. First, the, the first, the, I had a couple of experiences throughout my childhood. The first was when I was quite young and I have very few memories of that. There were two men in the village that I grew up in who abused lots of kids in that village. And then again, when I was about 11, I was abused by a, um, a neighbour, a teenager, who would have been about 15 or 16 at the time. Um, I think it was about 10, actually, when that happened. We, we moved from that village when I was 11 to, to Wexford Town, a nearby town in, in the southeast of Ireland. And for me, that was the, that was, it felt like a breaking free of all of that and a new start. Um, and um, I was happily getting on with life. Got very involved in, because I was somebody who wanted to be out in the world. I've always want, I've always been fascinated and interested in the kind of things that happen when we start to work together in the, in the potential of an engagement with each other and what comes from that. So I was very involved in like a youth group that I, that I went to. I, I sang at church every week in a folk group. I wasn't a great singer, but I loved music and loved the, the, the communal nature of that. So sang there, was involved in, in all kinds of things. And, and Ireland of the time meant that all of that revolved around church. So everything that we did revolved around church. The school I went to was a Catholic school because they all were generally. Uh, and the youth group was in a convent, for God's sake. You know, it was, it literally happened every Saturday night in a convent. Um, you know, any, any disco or dance or anything that happened was organised by the school. So there was a lot of, church was everywhere. And that was fine. That's just how it was at the time. Um, and then when I was about 14, I was at an event. Um, for the youth group. It was kind of a network event for youth groups from around the county. 
And at the event, this young priest, who would have been in his late 20s, came up to talk to me. There was nothing at all remarkable about that. That happened all the time as well. But two weeks later, he turned up at my home. Um, and he wasn't known to us, but because he was a priest, he was invited in. Yeah, he was invited in and trusted completely. Um, sat in the living room, made tea and left to talk to me. And over the course of a couple of hours, he he just started to talk to me more about who I was and what kind of things interested me. And in the course of the conversation, he said... And actually, when I look back now, there were elements of the conversation that were quite prurient. Uh, um, uh, but at 14, I didn't really know what to do of course, with that. Yeah. But I, he then started to ask me about the kind of things that I was interested in. So I told him about the youth group and the folk group. And, and he told me that he'd just been appointed to a new parish and he was trying to set up a youth group and a folk group down in that parish. And would I come and help him with that? Mm-hmm. Which to me was really flattering and really exciting because I wanted to do stuff. Mm-hmm. So I said I would if my mum would let me and he said, oh, she'll let you all right. And he asked and she did. And two weeks later, he came and collected me and, and brought me down to his um, house in this really rural, rural part of, uh, of uh, Wexford. Um, um, and he wasn't bringing me down there to get me involved with his youth group or his mm-hmm. folk group. The first night that he brought me down there, he sexually assaulted me for the first time. Mm-hmm. And um, then through a combination of threats and blackmail, uh, um, forced me to go back again um, and that just the, the, the abuse continued on for almost three years rape became a, free, a frequent element of that um, and it only ended um, when I turned 17 uh, First of all thank you for I mean sure I know this is it's a, it's a, it's a tricky thing I know it's, it's, a, it's a matter of in in some ways of of of, of public knowledge, you have sp- have spoken about that before, incredibly bra- bravely as well. At fourteen, at fifteen, as you said, there was there is absolutely no support uh, network for that, and and you were sent through through a combination of blackmail, etc. Um, somebody who is predatory like that, who is who is abusing uh, a child like that, um, uh, knows full well exactly what what keeps a child from. And he was a priest. And he was a priest. You know, yeah. which in which in 1979-1980 meant very different things mm-hmm. than it means now. Mm-hmm. You know, these these were men who were beyond reproach, whose colour meant that they were accorded extraordinary levels of, of deference and respect. They were capable of no, no wrong. And for me, that was part of what was so difficult. I remember after the first time they abused me, getting out of that bed, freaking out, not knowing... How, how do, what's happened? Like literally feeling like I was losing my mind. I remember going out of the room and running down the stairs and going into the kitchen in the house and feeling like I was going insane because what had just happened wasn't possible. It, it couldn't have happened. This can't be real. If this is real, everything I've been told about the world isn't true because priests are good, unquestionably so. This kind of sex... Like, first of all, sex didn't exist. Right? Yes, yeah, yeah. This wasn't, and I know this sounds bizarre, but for, for that time in Ireland, mm-hmm. uh, um, sex wasn't talked about. And the idea that a, an older man would sexually assault a, a, a boy, mm-hmm. that, that, I mean, these were not real things. This could not be possible. Never mind the fact that at 14, I had responses to what had happened that also freaked me out completely. I didn't know how to deal with what had happened to me. So the levels of shame and guilt that I felt, uh, the level of confusion, the level of madness that I felt about it all was extraordinary. I literally was losing my mind. And I can remember thinking, okay, okay, 
trying to find a way to get control of the situation of what was happening. And I, 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 I did a very Irish thing. I made tea. <laughs> I, I remember going and putting the kettle on and making a pot of tea almost kind of automatically. So Irish. Yeah, yeah. And so sweet in its yeah, own way too when I look back. Yeah. And then I remember going to the bottom of the stairs and halting, you know, waiting at the bottom of the stairs because I was going to call him down. But I didn't know what to call him because I, I couldn't call him father because that's what we had to call these men. Mm-hmm. And his name was Sean and that was my father's name. And I couldn't call him that. I remember, I don't know what to call him. So I called him John. Right. And he came down and he sat down at the table in silence and I poured tea. And I looked at him and he looked at me and he was all, you know, full up and imperious. And, mm-hmm. and I remember saying to him, going, this, this can never, ever happen again. And he looked at me and he could see what was happening. And I saw something click in his head, you know, in his eyes. And he went, yes, you're right. You must never do this again. Right. But, but for me, I seized upon that because yeah. suddenly, oh, I'm in charge. I did this. Yes. Yeah. Now that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's part of the dynamic of, of sexual violence against children. The perpetrator puts responsibility for their crime on the child. Yeah. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons why shame becomes such a huge factor for people who experience sexual violence. I think at any point in their life, but certainly as children, that they take on board responsibility for the crime. Mm-hmm. And they take on board the shame of the perpetrator. But more than that, they take on board the shame of of society all around them. I can remember, you know, looking back now, you know, my mum and dad, they were good people, but they knew what was going on with me. Like if, if I was feeling a bit ill, mum mm-hmm. would pick up on that. Yeah, yeah. And if I'd done yeah. something wrong, they'd know, they'd know by me. Mm-hmm. And suddenly this thing happens and nobody sees. Yeah. Yeah. So are. my experience was that people looked away. So there was something that, that, that people could not and wouldn't. Now, I didn't want them to see because I was horrified at the idea that they'd find out what I had done. Mm-hmm. So it was all of that, all of, all of those dynamics that made it really easy for him to exploit my confusion, my ignorance, my fear, uh, the shame that I'd taken on board and, and then to exploit that to, to continue to force me to go back. And you are, as you put it, yeah, you're forced to, to bear the burden of everybody else's inability to deal with mm. with the truth as well too, yeah. you know, from your experience. How does that affect the next few years of your life? I mean, by the time I was 17, um, I was really seriously depressed. I mean, very, very unwell and quite suicidal. Mm-hmm. Um, I, at one point, I remember trying to tell my mother what was happening and I couldn't. And... Um, he had come to collect me and I was upstairs on my bed and didn't want to go. And I was crying saying I didn't want to go. And mom, and he was down at the bottom of the stairs. And my mum was up and down between the two of us saying to me, what's wrong? Why don't you want to go? What's wrong with you? And I wouldn't say. And then she went back down to him and he would say to her, well, he's obviously made some arrangements with his friends and yet he has obligations now to me and to the work in the parish. So it's really important that he should be told to come. You can't, he must come with me. And in the end, I was made to go with him. And I remember getting in the car and he looked at me. And within 10 minutes of leaving the house, he was pawing me in the car. And and I can remember, it felt like, all I can say is that up until that moment, it felt like I was hanging on to the edge of a swimming pool in a really dark, dark place, just clinging on to the edge of it. And there was something pawing at me. And in that moment, when he made me get into the car, I just let go and just let myself go to it. 
and just just drowned in it. And then that was the next, the next like almost three years were like that. So by the time I was seventeen, um, yeah, I was in a very very bad place, and that's when I I ultimately fled. Yeah. The last time that I saw him, he knew that I was quite desperate to get away, mm-hmm. and um, he said he'd help me get away. He offered me money. Um, if I would find someone like me but younger than me, you for him. You're kidding me. No, you're fucking joking. And I remember getting out of the car and walking away and kind of going, "That, that's it, that's it." And I packed a bag and arranged to leave and hitched to Dublin. Okay. And that's when I ended up on the on the streets in Dublin. I, I was see. Homeless in Dublin for about six months. Okay. And, I mean. I, I can't I can't imagine I find, find it like I can't I can't imagine what I mean what what you know what what you're going through at, at that age of course you know to run away to Dublin where, where where was your first port of call I mean for somebody you were in a fairly rural I mean not rural but but living in Wexford town at that at that yeah. stage okay um but but and there was more going on as well my parents were a f- kind of separating at that stage my mother had actually gone to India to live in an ashram with my three younger siblings for a year yeah, yeah it was, I had a fairly interesting childhood on lots of levels very diverse set of experiences yeah. some great some not so great yes. um, but but so, so yeah so I left and went to Dublin and I stayed with a friend who started college up there for about a week but I couldn't stay with her long term and then I literally I just ended up on the streets and I'd, I'd walk around at night uh, um or I'd get picked up okay. and used yeah. for okay. a bed. or And as far as I was concerned, that meant I had a bed to s- sleep in. You know, that was fine, whatever. And sure, what else was I for anyway? That was my value. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and if I didn't, I'd just walk around on light or I'd, you know, sit in a park or I remember sleeping under a bush a couple of times. And then during the day, I'd find somewhere to sleep for an hour or two. I remember the the the, the toilet in Burger King on O'Connell Street was was somewhere that I would fall asleep reasonably regularly before I kicked out, kicked out of there. But I, I kept out of the way of people. Like I remember meeting somebody years later who worked with, with street homeless kids at that time and he said, how come we never came across you? And I'm, because I made sure you didn't. I wasn't going to let anybody find me. I remember going into a, into a social welfare office, which is a social services office, yeah. looking for help and and... That was the only time I reached out looking for help, and and the woman said to me, "You're you're not eighteen, so you're a family's responsibility, so you have to go home." And I couldn't go home. Yeah, you. This is something you you said, which is interesting. It wasn't until you were eighteen that you were able to get get, yeah. get your hands on 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 state state yeah. support, essentially. Yeah. yeah. So it's that interesting, nearly flip side of you would think when you have you know you couldn't go home, you felt you couldn't you couldn't spend yeah. that time with your family. Well, I suppose I mean. Had had I accessed social services in a way where they realised there was a child protection issue here, then that would have put them back in touch with my family. And at that stage, I was terrified of my dad finding out what was going on. So, I mean, I'd run away to get safe, really. And I mean, I, it sounds like a really odd thing to say, but that's what happened. You know, I started to find my own feet almost. You know, I started to find some sense of self for the first time. And after about six months, things became more secure. Actually, I remember it was before before I turned 18 and was able to get any kind of state support. The first thing that happened was I got a, I got a job in a little Italian um, coffee place just off Grafton Street in Dublin called the Coffee Inn, mm-hmm. where I learned to make cappuccinos and right, okay. serve creme brulees and stuff. And if I, if I did a shift there, I got 
10 pounds, 10 punts at the time. Okay. And that was enough to pay for a bed and breakfast in Gardner Street. Okay. So a shift meant that I had somewhere to sleep that okay. night. Okay. So that was the beginning of starting to to, to get off the streets. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I saved up enough from tips and things to put down a deposit on a little bed set and, and got set up there. Okay. And then I got glandular fever and couldn't work and lost that <laughs> and ended up making that. So there was lots of, like it was all very, very precarious. And I mean, looking back now, you know, I've, I've two kids now and they're like almost 21 and 23. And even now to think about them being in that situation is terrifying. But... Um, Human resilience is an extraordinary thing and I just kind of got through it and f- found my way back to some level of security and then started to mm-hmm. build out from there, really. Mm-hmm. I think it's safe to say you were definitely the most resilient person I've ever met. And then every time I hear you speak, because, you know, ever I hear, um, and we've spoken once or twice personally, you know, and then when I hear other conversations you've had or, or you know, um, uh, in, in other discussions, I I learn more and and I'm surer and surer. You're definitely the most resilient person. I've the thing ever is, Andrew, met in my you, life. you never know. You, you one never knows how resilient one is until you have to be, and and that's the thing about life. Life is incredibly resilient. Life always seeks to manifest itself in a in a healthy, powerful, affirming way. It tries to move to health, even in those moments where we're doing stuff that looks like it's destructive. When you begin to understand what's happening underneath, it's just an attempt to survive or to cope with something. And as you unpick that, you gradually begin to find better ways to move towards health and towards life. So you never know. I mean, human resilience is an extraordinary thing. The resilience of life is an. I mean, look at a look at a tree grown out of a crack in a wall for God's sake I mean, yeah, you know yeah. how does that happen yeah. and, and we're the same you know life life as a force is something else I've heard you describe this as it, it just it was catching up with you or that this was some some part of your life some kind of defining thing that, that was catching up with you that you had to turn and, and, and face and share with with a family member or at least uh, you know to speak it speak it out loud so to speak but how do you get from that point also I'm fascinated how you how you um, managed to to get into university and, and you you studied you know you studied to become a therapist but um, just ha- that part of that journey I mean that's you know turning and facing that how, how was that I spent two years altogether in, in Dublin from 17 to 19. And in that period, that's when, you know, I got out of what was a very precarious situation and began to find some space to understand myself. So I, I came out, I made friends, I fell in love for the first time. I realised that, 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 um, that I was gay and that that wasn't about abuse. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. this was a very different thing to those experiences with that with that priest and I fell in love for the first time which was just the most extraordinarily sweet thing so I began to have the kind of experiences that that most people have perhaps when they're a little bit younger um, and then at 19 I moved to, to London because Ireland in the 1980s there wasn't very much happening um, and came over came over to London first thinking I'd be here for six weeks or maybe six months and you know 10 years later I found myself buying a house for the first time and thinking maybe I'm going to stay here for a while yeah, yeah. so by by 28 I was in a in had been in a relationship for about seven years, um, had bought a home, was 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 really thinking about career. Had started to train as a therapist first as all as a as a physical therapist and then training in counselling and psych- psychotherapy, and I I'd really started to stop running, and when you start to stop running, 
what you're running from starts to become ever more present because it begins to catch up a little bit. Um, but I still couldn't frame what had happened to me honestly to myself. I would talk about the stuff that had happened, that thing that happened, that back there. It was a, you know, it was just, there's this part in my head, in my mind somewhere, and there, there, it's this dark, shadowy place. There, there be monsters. I don't go there. That's the thing. That's that. Um, and and a f- um, some years earlier, when I was 21, I'd re-established contact with my family. So I had an ongoing contact uh, with with my family, particularly with with some of my siblings. And um, my one of my sisters was going to a family wedding that my dad was also going to, and it turned out that that priest was going to officiate at the wedding. Right. And she told me afterwards that. Um, she noticed that he had lots of young boys around him at the wedding, that he seemed to be spending lots of time with young boys. And that was the first time that it occurred to me that, oh my God, he, he could still be doing this. Mm-hmm. So that was 1994, mid-1994, and I really started to struggle with the idea that I needed to do something. So I, first of all, I thought, well, I'll, I'll write to the bishop. Thank God I didn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, you didn't, you didn't, didn't in the end. No, I didn't write yeah. to the bishop. But I just struggled to work out what to do and talk to my elder sister, Barbara, who's just one of my best friends and has just been, you know, one of the most important people in my whole journey on all of this stuff, you know, a really important advisor and confidant. Talk to her about it. And coincidentally, around the same time, so it was New Year's Eve, 1994, 1995, my dad at this point was living with Barbara mm-hmm. and um, at a party in her house on New Year's Eve he pulled her and one of his best friends into his room and broke down mm-hmm. and dad was not an emotional man when I say emotional he wasn't emotionally vulnerable mm-hmm. he could get angry sometimes but he never showed yeah. softer emotions yeah. or, or, or more vulnerable emotions and he just said that because um, I had given Barbara an idea of what had happened to me and she had told him some years earlier but we never talked about it again it had never been talked about it yeah. was this other impossible secret that nobody looked at and that everybody avoided for a decade. And he said that he hadn't been able to sleep for 12 years because of what had happened to me and something had to be done about it. So she told him that I was saying exactly the same thing. She rang me the next day to tell me and I immediately picked up the phone to him and dad and I had the first real conversation we'd had since I came home again, or ever probably, actually. And... um, a month later, with his support and with Barbara's support, I, I returned to Ireland and, and made a, a statement to the police and reported what had happened. And that then kicked off a, an investigation that became quite a huge investigation. At that time, I believe this was just me reporting one bad man who happened to be a priest who had done some bad things to me. But within six weeks, another five men had made statements. Within sort of six months, I became aware of suggestions that the church had known about him before he was even ordained a priest, that there'd been earlier complaints. Mm-hmm. Within 18 months, I found out that complaints had gone as far as the Vatican. The mm-hmm. Vatican had acknowledged the complaints, but nothing had been done. And he had remained in the priesthood until I made my statement. He had remained not just in the priesthood, but as a as a priest in practice. He was in ministry um, up until he was arrested on foot of my complaint. So... At, at every step of, every time that something like this was discovered, to me, there were other questions. Yes, so it's like, yeah. how, could, how could that have happened for so long? Mm-hmm. How could the church have ordained him? Mm-hmm. How could the Vatican not have intervened if they were, if they had complaints about this guy? And how could he have done this for so long to so many people without any state agency mm-hmm. seeing what was happening? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And nobody else was asking those questions. 
And when you go to the police and make a complaint, and even when the state prosecutes, and they were they decided to prosecute, he was being prosecuted, facing 66 charges in total. Um, you're a witness in the state's prosecution. It's not you versus the defendant. It's the state versus the defendant, and you're a witness. But all the state does is prosecute those crimes. Nobody was asking those other questions, and nobody seemed interested in doing it. But they had to be asked. So I went and saw a lawyer and the only way forward was to take a civil action against the church. So in 1998, I started a civil action against the priest, against the bishop and against the Pope, against Pope John Paul II. Okay. So to try and get to the truth of all of that. For, for, so just, just, to, just to kind of recap on this, and this is what, what I was saying earlier on about kind of uh, your actions, the actions of one person making waves in, in a way that is, I think, unprecedented. Surely no one has ever decided to sue the, sue the Pope. Well, it was it was a fairly extraordinary thing to do, all right. Like it was a, a very obvious thing to do to me. Like it seemed like, well, how do we get the answers to this? Well, this is the only way because they're not going to provide them. So we're going to have to find a mechanism to try and force them to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to force the Catholic Church to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, I mean, it was surreal. I can remember thinking, you can't, that's ridiculous. You can't do that. But it was very obviously the right thing to do. Now, it turns out that other people around the world were also, because there was a lot of this starting to bubble up around the world. Yeah. Um, it was very clear that the, the Vatican was not going to allow itself to be sued. You know, they would use, because they would use sovereign immunity, you know, the, the sovereign status of the Pope as, as head, of a, a head of an independent state or diploma, um, diplomatic immunity to try and block the, the, the case. Mm-hmm. My take on that, my lawyer said, you know, you're you're unlikely to win this because they'll they'll do that. And I said, well, our demand is that they tell the truth. And if the response of the Pope, the Supreme Pontiff of the Roman Catholic Church and the head of the Vatican City State is to refuse to tell the truth about what Heary's institution knew about the rape and abuse of children by one of their priests and instead to manipulate diplomatic law to avoid having to tell the truth, mm-hmm. then that's what we need to reveal. Yes, yeah. So that is something yes. that we need to force to happen yeah. to reveal the truth yeah. of how the institution yeah. is behaving. And that activity, I suppose, that action taken is its own glaring yeah. uh, truth. You yeah. know what I mean? It's yeah. its own... Um, and there was always the, the, the slim possibility that they might have decided to tell the truth. You know, you, <laughs> I, I'm, 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 I know this sounds a little bit facetious. I, I mean, and it is and it isn't. It, it is and it also isn't. I always believe... In, in in any engagement with anybody, no matter how challenging it might be, to try and offer the possibility that there'll be an engagement that takes us forward somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, so in the years since, I mean, I've gone to the Vatican, I've met with cardinals and with bishops, and I will do it again um, and have those conversations. Sadly, nothing very much has changed, mm-hmm. but I would do it again tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think I think that bit's important. Yeah. And and just just on accountability, because that's for me one of the things that's so I mean that's that's such an, an ambitious, quite, staggeringly ambitious sort of uh, undertaking of let's let's try to um, let's try to hold this institution, this this head of this institution, to account for. Well, why not? You know, why not? I mean, it, why not? Yeah. Why should any individual or institution, whoever they might be, and whatever they might profess themselves to be, be above the law, or be above what's simply right? And it's not about the law. I mean, if you think about the purpose of the law, the law exists to serve a purpose to deal with injustice, mm-hmm. to deal with offences against humanity, against goodness, against love. Mm-hmm. Um, so why should, why should anybody or any institution, no matter who they believe themselves to be, be above being accountable for an offence against love? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And can, can I ask you, like, how, how ultimately do you 
do you hold? Uh, or how is how do you you know power to account and or an institution to account? So it's not it's not that it's not that I think you 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 approach a situation like that and hope something positive might come of it. For me, it was about it was about pursuing accountability and pursuing the truth and staying open to the idea and offering a, a, a means through which the other could, could properly and appropriately offer themselves to be accountable. Now, if they're not going to, we still need to get there. We still need to force that. But there's the, there's the openness to that. That bit matters. Um, but I suppose what you're asking is, in that broader context, you know, when we talk about work in, in activism or, or within a human rights organisation like Amnesty. You know, we've 7 million members globally. We've been around since like 1951. We're a big established organisation. What's it all about? Well, it's about, it's actually about much of what my own story has been about. The idea that um, the actions of individual people uh, um, are, are powerful. Not can be, but are. And that every action is. And that coordinated, concerted, determined action absolutely is. In reality, the only thing that ever changes the world, the only thing that ever holds power to account is when ordinary people seize and manifest their own power and demand change. Power at a political or institutional level, like big, big systemic power structures, they don't change by choice because they exist to serve themselves. Of course they do. Um, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but of course they do. Systems are established and they, they, they are systems. So they operate systemically. They don't know how to change. They're not, they're not geared towards change or self, self-criticism. Mm-hmm. So uh, um, real change uh, uh, only ever happens when ordinary people demand change. Mm-hmm. Um, and the key point in all of that is that it's not just that, that, that change through the actions of individuals is possible, it's actually inevitable. If enough of us stay focused on, if one of us stays focused on demanding the truth, that's a powerful act and that begins to create change. If enough of us do, it becomes irresistible. We are all more powerful than we imagine we are. And, and for me, that's the, that's the great tragedy of where we're at at the moment. You know, you look around the world at the moment, the level of, of toxicity, of division, of hate that permeates what passes for public discourse. So if we look at our, our, our systems of, 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 of discourse, be it the media or politics, uh, and the places or the, 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 the spaces that we're told are the channels for public discourse, they're failing us utterly. They are, they are, they are just so invested in toxicity and hate and division. Um, and I think for an awful lot of people, they look at that and, and it, or either it starts to become infectious and corrupting. Mm-hmm. But for the majority of people, what they do is they look away because it's just, what do you do? How do you begin to change that narrative? Well, again, the only way that, the, the only way that we're going to defeat the kind of hate that we're seeing in the world right now is to manifest its opposite. We're not going to defeat hate by challenging it. There's no point in arguing with people who tell us that we are less than human. Mm-hmm. or that any one of us is less than human. Mm-hmm. I refuse to argue with somebody who says that somebody else is not fully human because of their gender mm-hmm. or their sexual orientation, their gender identity or their ethnicity or their, their, their status, whether they're able-bodied or disabled or any other criteria. I refuse. So for me, the answer is to turn away from that, not to fight them uh, in that space, mm-hmm. but to powerfully manifest their opposite. We're at a point in our history where love and loving has become an essential and radical act. 
And for me, what we need to do, each one of us, is, is move through our days thinking about how we make manifest mm-hmm. the best of who we are and the best of who we want to be. So our interactions with each other, how do we make manifest the best of ourselves? If you find yourself inspired or angry, this podcast isn't just about talking. It's about making change happen. And you can do that right now. You can head to globalcitizen.org slash crypower to take action on these issues. This is Hosier, and you're listening to my Cry Power podcast. What I love about, I suppose, sitting sit down and talking to you, or just listening to you speak is, is let's see, your vision um, about things like this, about human empathy, hum, human solidarity, um, which I'm sure is informed by the work you did with, with One in Four and your own experience and, and ref, reflecting on that. How do you get from, from this point of, of such trauma and such hurt and such, uh, and such burden? Such fracture. Such fracture, yeah. yeah to, to be in a position to, um, to kind of hold your arms out to the world then. Because empathy is a, is a courageous act, you know, uh, loving is a courageous act. It is. It's the. It's the kind of. It's the coward that points the gun. You know what I mean. It's. It's the. It's the open hand that is. Is, is the brave act. How do you get to the point of being able to share a story like that, and being able to open your arms to the world and and move forward? Until I was thirty, so I would have gone to the police in my when I was almost twenty nine, and I can honestly say, until I was thirty, I lived from the neck up and the face out, if that makes any sense. I had no connection with her understanding of who I was. I had no connection with the truth of my own feelings, my own sense of self, certainly not with my own heart or my own value. So I was running from everything that had been done to me for years. And I I presented to the world in a way that was like, tell me what you need me to be so that you will say that I am valid or valuable because I need to work out what you need so that I can give you that because I can't let you see who I really am. Because I believed I was foul. Uh, I carried such shame and such, I mean, when I say shame, I mean, it was, it was so toxic. It was so pervasive. It was so deep. I could not connect with my own body. Literally, it was neck up and face out stuff. Um, and I had to, I had to over time begin to confront that. So I had to begin to um, find a way back to myself. Um, I had to forgive myself first. I had to forgive myself for a crime that I didn't commit. And that was really tough because intellectually I knew it wasn't my fault. Right? So I can remember, you know, seeing a therapist for the first time and it was hilarious. I, I, I chose somebody um, who was certainly going to give me what I wanted at that time. And what I wanted was to be told I was okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I can remember, you know, sitting with her and she said to me, you know, this isn't your fault. And I go, yes, oh no, I know this isn't my fault. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> it's not my fault. Yeah. And I meant that, right? Because again, neck up, face out, intellectually, none of this was my fault. Yeah. I can remember driving back from, like I lived in Peckham at the time and, and she was up in Hampstead or somewhere, Hampstead Heath, and driving up across town and, and on the way up thinking to my third session, thinking, you know, I, I, I think I'm fine. I don't think I need to come back here again. And I kid you not, 20 minutes into that session, she said, you know, I think you're fine. I don't think you need to come back here again. Like it was that powerful a dynamic. Yeah. But I wasn't fine. Yeah. Like I wasn't fine at all. Mm-hmm. 
And then... Um, was this before you started uh, studying? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Long, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> she should have studied a bit more as well. No, no, no. But just... The, but, uh, yeah. um, and then what happened was uh, a dad uh, who I'd become intensely close to through that disclosure, he and I connected in ways that I don't think ever, us, ever of us, either of us could ever have imagined. And we just began to have the most honest, open, powerful, loving relationship in which we confronted loads of stuff. For, for him and who he was, for me, for us together, it was phenomenal. But in December of that year, he was diagnosed with liver cancer and he died three weeks later. So that was a moment of, just that was a moment of, um, I mean, it was a, a moment of extraordinary crisis and power and love and loss and grief and all kinds of things. So that threw me back into needing to look at all of this again. And, you know, this time, luckily, uh, I, I realized or I was confronted with that narrative where I was saying, yeah, I know it's not my fault. I have nothing to feel ashamed of. And somebody said to me, but it's not true. Like, I hear what you're saying, but I, I mean, I hear the words, but I don't hear truth in what you're saying. And that was, and I remember thinking, what does that mean? So what I started to do was, was to find a way to say truthfully what was happening for me. So I know it's not my fault changed from that to, I know it's my, not my fault, but I feel like it is. I know I've no reason to feel ashamed, but I'm drowning in shame. I'm so full of shame that I feel like I'm going to die if I go near it. And it was that real. It felt like I would die if I went to that place. And with a lot of support and a lot of care, um, I began to go to those places. And I learned to forgive myself for something I hadn't done. And in that, I discovered a, um, a sense of, no, I discovered a, a true and genuine compassion for myself and a way back to valuing and loving myself. And the thing about that is, when you have the capacity in all of that, or when you discover, because we all have it, when you discover that capacity to connect with your own heart, and, and when that experience is as transformative as it, as it was for me and as it, as, as it is in those kind of circumstances, like the potential of that becomes something then that, that just, well, why would you not want that for everybody or anybody? So, you know, the discovery of empathy or of, of love, I mean, it's such a cliche, isn't it? I mean, you know, what, what does RuPaul say? <laughs> you know, if you can't love yourself, how are you going to love somebody else? You know, it's a terrible cliche, but it's also true. You know, love starts with, a, with an honest and true and open connection with yourself. And, and loving oneself doesn't mean believing that you're brilliant. It means being able to look at the times in your life where you haven't been. It means being able to look at the shit that's happened or that you've done or that's been done to you and understanding it and taking real responsibility for your own part in that, whatever that might have been, and, and, and having compassion and understanding yourself. Um, and that's a place where you discover what love really means um, and how powerful a force it can be. So to be honest, that's the thing that's always been the foundation to anything that I do. I mean, the reason why I am... Uh, uh, and naturally optimistic isn't the right word I mean my heart is always full of hope because I think at the heart of our humanity lies love and compassion and empathy and goodness beyond imagination if only we create the conditions for it to manifest mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know I've seen you organise or be part of uh, 
grassroots movements as well too. And, and uh, the Stand for Truth rally is a perfect example of also of creating a space where there is space for that kind of human empathy and and it was a very remarkable event, you know, standing in solidarity of people who had, who were victims of, of clerical abuse and, and, and women who had been in mother and baby homes in Ireland. But a sense of healing and a sense of, you know, addressing those kind of atrocities and, and, and then creating a space where that empathy was thriving and that, that, that sense of solidarity was thriving. And it was a really, really remarkable event. Um, how, you know, how is that, you know, for, for you, what's a, what's a good place to start? So find the spaces where you can speak from that truth. Find the spaces where that can manifest for you however it does. Now, I know that sounds really abstract and I'll be a, a little bit more specific in a moment. But I mean, you mentioned Stand for Truth. This was an event, because many people won't understand what that was. This was an event when Pope Francis came to Ireland last year. I had planned not to be in the country, um, but for a variety of reasons ended up being there. And And it became clear a few weeks or months before he came that they were not even going to acknowledge the history of abuse in Ireland. They were just going to pretend it hadn't happened. They weren't even going to deal with it. There wouldn't be time for them to do it. That was such an outrageous suggestion in a country that had been so fractured and damaged by this, so traumatised collectively and, and, and socially by all of this, that that just couldn't have been allowed to pass. So I was getting lots of contact from people to do things, to speak out, to do more stuff, lots of international media as well. And then people were asking me, would you organise a, a protest or a demonstration? And frankly, I didn't want to protest the Pope's visit. I didn't want to, for a number of reasons. First of all, there were many people who were going to, it looked like anyway, didn't turn out to be the case, but there were there were going to be hundreds of thousands of people who want to go along as an act of faith, as a manifestation of their faith. I don't have religious faith, but I have a profound respect for the fact that people do. And I think people should be free to, to joyously manifest their faith. So I didn't want to put that on them, if you know what I mean. And then more importantly, I also didn't want to create a dynamic where we were going to invite people who had been, uh, uh, abuse themselves to come along and stand behind crash barriers which would be you know miles away from where the Pope would ever be and be sidelined and, and stuck in this space where their trauma was manifest rather yeah. than anything else and I just I just didn't want to do that so instead I remember sitting there and again it's the instantaneous stuff that sometimes has the greatest impact and I remember just putting out a tweet because I do that quite a bit. Um, and uh, I put out a tweet saying, um, if you or somebody you know of or love has been harmed or hurt by the actions of the institutional Roman Catholic Church, mm. come and stand for truth, for justice, for love and solidarity with us on the 26th of August at 3.30 at the Garden of Remembrance in Dublin. And I just put that out there and things kind of took off from there. And then about seven or eight incredible people, including a remarkable mutual friend of ours, Simone George, who also had organised the Safe Ireland Summit, mm-hmm. um, got in touch to try and help me. Within seven days, we put together this event, uh, um, which coincided with the Papal Mass, but was not a demonstration against it. It was just a space for people to come and, and be together. And it was powerful. You performed at it, you sang at it. It was magnificent. The whole, it was just one of the most profound experiences of my life because it, 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 it captured it all like the pain, the trauma, the hurt, the grief and the love. Like the love in that place was something else. The, and the joy in the connection, in empathy and in love was something else. We said before the event that we wanted to march silently from, from uh, the Garden of Remembrance to Sean McDermott Street in Dublin, which was the site of the last Magdalene Laundry. These were the institutions that, that women who had offended against church sensibilities by being women 
um, were incarcerated and, and subjected to forced labour very often for decades. It only closed in 1996 and it was a, it was a, it's a vacant building still. Um, we said we'll mark to that and demand that it be respected as a site of conscience. And we want to march silently. We want to walk silently following this event to that space. And I remember people coming up to me on social media and saying, we've been silent for too long. We're not going to be silent. And yet on the day, through what manifest, through performance and engagement and, and, and just inviting people to be in that space, mm-hmm. there was the most extraordinary experience of walking from Sean McDermott Street, the few kilometres from... Um, um, from the Garden of Remembrance up to Sean McDermott Street was a couple of kilometres away with about 10,000 people in absolute silence. I can remember turning the corner on O'Connell Street and there's a coffee shop on the corner and hearing somebody put a spoon into a saucer outside the coffee shop. That's how silent it was. And it was powerful. So create the spaces and invite love, invite empathy, invite powerful, fierce compassion and it will manifest. Now, that's fairly broad, isn't it? It's broad. But there are many, many other ways we can do that. So, for example, I mean, one of the things that, that I'm very involved in with Amnesty globally, but now also in Ireland, is a programme called Community Sponsorship for Refugees. This mm-hmm. is an amazing model that developed in Canada in the 1970s. I'd love to speak to you about this, actually. Yeah. It is. So this this is the idea that, that, that if people are fleeing persecution or conflict and desperately need safety and protection, that, yeah, states have obligations to respond to that need and to provide resettlement. They have obligations under international law. The Refugee Convention applies. National laws uh, apply as well. And states need to do that. But actually, if we can get communities involved, if we can find ways for us individually, as human beings, as communities, to support that, we can do so much more. And we can do it so much better. So the idea of sponsorship is that a local community group or a group of individuals within a community come together and they say, we are going to receive and welcome a newcomer, a refugee who's going to be brought to the country or a family. We're going to be their best friends for the first year, year and a half of their life here. We're going to help them to settle in. We're going to support their integration. We're going to wrap ourselves around them in their first year and help them arrive uh, um, and, and rebuild their lives and make them part of our community. Um, and that's a really powerful way that we can begin to respond to this. I remember over the last number of years, people would have watched the crisis in Syria or the conflict or just the, the carnage that we're seeing in the Mediterranean because of how the EU is responding to this crisis, this human rights yeah. and humanitarian crisis. Or not responding, I suppose. Or the situation on the US-Mexico yeah. border, which is the same. Um, but actually, Europe in many ways is frankly worse. The same in, 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 in Southeast Asia, in Australia. The response to to refugees, which is a humanitarian crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, people feel hopeless. People look and they kind of think, I care deeply, but what can I do other than give money? What can I do? Yes, yeah. Well, here's something that you can do. Yeah, yeah. You can help to receive somebody with love and with compassion uh, and help them to rebuild their lives. Mm-hmm. It's a powerful thing that people can do. So we that program is now up and running, started in Canada, there's now about 18 countries looking at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're involved in about seven of those countries starting to build those programs here. Yeah. And it started in Ireland last year and the first family arrived in December of last year. So mm-hmm. we're very involved in making that happen. So mm-hmm. that's something that people can do. And I'll provide links so that people can find out more about those I'd, programs wherever they are as I, well. I'd love that. And just, and just to contextualise for, for listeners, obviously, you know, 
right now is a, a refugee crisis, uh, the likes of which has not been seen uh, since about World War II. So yeah, it's the largest refugee crisis. But let's put that in some context, by the way, because again, that feeds into this notion of hopelessness or that we can't deal with this. Oh, cer- certainly not. So yeah, the, the, yeah. The, the, there are about 25 million refugees, 26 million refugees in the world right now. There's about 1.2 million that are in urgent need of resettlement, but about 26 million in total. That represents about 0.3 of 1% of the world's population. Now, is anybody honestly going to try and say that the developed, wealthy part of the world cannot find a way to provide basic care and support to 0.3% of the world's population? So over 50% of refugees are hosted in developing world countries. The idea that somehow it's Europe, North America and the rich global north that's bearing the brunt, whatever that means, of this refugee crisis is frankly, excuse my language now, but it's bullshit. The people who are bearing the brunt of that are, are refugees, are men, women and children who are fleeing horrific persecution or conflict or desperation. And then actually a large, a small number of countries in the global south who are, having, who are hosting many of those and being left to do it without the kind of support that they need from the rest of the world. It's 0.3 of 1% of the population. Of course we can deal with it. And we can deal with it if we do it together. And it's back to that idea again that the actions of individuals are what change everything. That, the, that, that, that when we decide to be part of responding to what might seem like a big crisis, that's the moment where it changes utterly uh, and where we really, really start to change systems that refuse to confront uh, uh, deeply important yeah, humanitarian yeah. issues. I, I can't, I know we're, we're, we're conscious of time there. I'm sure we've, we've, we've gone over. This was but, inevitable. <laughs> I know, I know, but like, I'm, I'm delighted. I'm thrilled. And I like, I've gone to two of the questions, I think, that I thought I was going to, but it's, this is, this is great. But um, just, because we've talked about what, what's, what's ahead for like a, a pilot program, which, which you're hoping to, to, to kind of roll out um, the community care. And that, I suppose that relies upon people's natural uh, capacity and uh, a capacity for empathy and, and and solidarity. But for people, I think a, a knowledge of language and a, and a language of understanding when it comes to la- like when, when we talk about things like solidarity, so solidarity in, in, in action, like em- empathy in, in action. How would you define solidarity and, and its legacy and its legacy of, 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 that you have witnessed? Not only, I suppose, we, in we see it in movements and in and in like in in let's say the, repeating the the Eighth Amendment or but a kind of cross the aisle solidarity on 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 people standing up for one another on issues uh, outside their own you know. So again, my experience in, and you referenced the the referendum campaign in Ireland on abortion rights and changing our constitution, a similar one that I was very involved in on marriage equality for same sex couples. I mean, I should say first of all, I think the idea of putting people's rights <laughs> and dignity and integrity and humanity to a public vote is obscene. Um, But there are actually times when legal systems mean that you have to do that. In the Irish context, that's what we have to do, um, or what we had to do in those cases. But what did we learn in in those conversations? So, you know, the rest of the world looked at Ireland in 2015 when we become the first country in the world to, 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 to provide for marriage equality for same-sex couples by a popular vote and went, scratched their heads and went, Ireland? Really? Ireland? Old Catholic, you know, moribund Ireland stuck in the dark ages. How did that happen? Mm-hmm. Um, and then similarly with, with the repeal of the Eighth Amendment, you know, people are saying, well, that's never going to pass. That's not going to happen. And actually many of the commentators mm-hmm. in Ireland on both marriage equality and abortion said these would be divisive, these would not pass, these would not be popular causes. They were hugely popular causes. At the end of the marriage equality referendum, people were dancing in the street. I don't remember 
an election or referendum process. I've never, ever seen that in Ireland where people danced in the street for days, mm-hmm. where I couldn't go anywhere in the country, never mind in the country. I got off a plane in Rome three days afterwards and I was being hugged by people on the tarmac of the yeah. plane. It was extraordinary. What, that, what, what we provided in, in those spaces was an opportunity to have a conversation about who we are as a people. In, in, in the marriage equality referendum, it was kind of like, okay, do we believe that the loving relationships and bonds that we form with each other are the foundation, foundations upon which we build our lives, our families, our community, our society, our republic? Do we believe that? Is that really important to us? And if we do, shouldn't that apply to everybody? This wasn't some, this wasn't a, a conversation that looked to us to, you know, reject theocracy and embrace modernity. Actually, it was, it was an invitation to connect in with our very ancient values, values grounded in love and compassion and mutual care and the duties and obligations that we have towards each other. And when we had that conversation, unsurprisingly, we said, yeah, we do actually. That's what we believe. That's who we are. And the, the, the referendum on the Eighth Amendment, the, the referendum on abortion rights was exactly the same thing. It was in moments of crisis or challenge or tragedy, what should we do? How should we respond? You know, what, what are the obligations that we owe each other? And we said we should respond with love. We should wrap our arms around each other and love and support each other at those moments. That's who we are. Um, and that's why we did that. So um, solidarity, uh, such a small, funny little word, um, for me is about, is about profound empathy, a connection and an understanding of the oneness of who we are, of the idea that, that, that love, that truth, that determined, ferocious love and compassion and empathy are transformative and powerful. And that our inability through conditioning, through oppression, through shame, through being told that we're not permitted, through being mocked when we do it or when we try to do it, that those are the things that cause fracture that result in, in hate and violation and a loss of those things. The great tragedy of, of humanity currently and for a very long time has been that for fear of the worst of us, we've abandoned the best of ourselves. Like if, if the truth of humanity is to be vile and evil and selfish and motivated by hate and division, why are we so afraid to acknowledge it? Why do we run away from taking responsibility for it? If, I, if I'm motivated by a desire to hate and violate other people, why wouldn't I just get on with it? Why would I not want to see that? The reason I don't want to see it is because it's not true. It's a profound insult to the truth of who I am. Now, the tragedy is that we're told we're not allowed name love um, and we're frightened to name hate because we don't know what to do with it. But if we named it, we reject it and it automatically takes us to that place of love and empathy and compassion. And I think we need to do more of that. I think we are doing it. I think there are hundreds of millions of people around the world who are doing it. And if we harness that, if we access that, if we manifest that, then everything will be good. Every, I don't mean it'll be easy, but it will be good. It'll even be great. Yeah. And that's for me what solidarity is about. It's what activism is about. It's what being human is about. Colm O'Gorman, thank you so, so much for, for giving us your time today and, and offering your, your insights and telling your story as well too. I really, really, really appreciate it. I have huge admiration and respect and I... Uh, I can't thank you enough. Thank you. 
um, for for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Always good to see you. You too. You too. It's, it's always it's always a very uplifting. I have to say, it's always very uplifting. Always. I look, I mean, you, you know the heart piece, you know. I mean, that that's something I understood the moment that I met you. You know the heart piece. Yeah, that's 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 where you live from. is made in association with Global Citizen, a movement of activists all over the world who are using their collective voice to end extreme poverty by 2030. You can head to globalcitizen.org slash crypower to take action on any of the issues we talk about on this show and earn tickets to gigs all over the world by signing petitions, writing emails, or sending tweets to world leaders. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Crypower podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts right now. Thank you so much for joining me. This is Hosier, and this is Cry Power.